Good afternoon. This is the hearing of the Subcommittee on the Western Hemisphere, Transnational Crime, Civilian Security, Democracy, Human Rights, and Global Women's Issues. It's a broad, uh, this committee has jurisdiction over a large number of issues. It is rare that every single one of them is being challenged in one place at one time. And I think the subject of today's hearing is a place where you can argue that transnational crime is present, civilian security is in danger, democracy is severely endangered, human rights is violated on a regular basis. And as far as global women's issues, some of the bravest activists on behalf of Venezuelan democracy have been women, including uh, Lenin Tintori, among others, who have been treated brutally by the Maduro regime. The title of this hearing is The Collapse of the Rule of Law in Venezuela, What the United States and the International Community Can Do to Restore Democracy. And today we will have one panel and one witness, and it will feature the Honorable Luis Almagro, the Secretary General of the Organization of American States. It is a unique privilege and honor to have him here today. As the uh, ranking member commented in the hearing we had in this very room about an hour ago, it is not a commonplace occurrence in which an ambassador of an international, multinational organization such as the OAS is before us. Uh, Secretary Almagro was elected the Secretary General of the OAS on the 18th of March, the year 2015. He is a career diplomat. He was the Foreign Minister of Uruguay from 2010 to 2015, and he has extensive regional and international experience. In 2014, Foreign Policy Magazine named him a leading global thinker, one of 10 decision makers in the world who have been granted this international distinction. But uh, the area in which we have seen him, uh, I believe, exhibit extraordinary leadership is as a staunch voice on efforts to restore democracy in Venezuela, and we are fortunate to have him here with us today. I'm going to abbreviate my opening statement because I do want to get into the Secretary General's statement, and I know that the uh, ranking member who's been working on this issue even before me being here in the Senate has uh, comments that he needs and wants and should make as well. Um, I want to be fundamentally clear. There's a lot of misunderstanding about the conflict that's occurring in Venezuela. A lot of people talk to me about the opposition, and, and while indeed they are in opposition to Maduro's regime, they are in fact the majority party in the National Assembly. In essence, they are the majority, not the opposition. The problem is that the people with the guns and the army who are in charge of Venezuela have canceled democracy. For those, I imagine, attending this hearing today, you do so because you have an interest in it. For those who may watch it now or in the future, you need to understand that what's happened there is the, uh, the following. And I apply what's happened there to what it would be like if it happened here. Imagine if the United States had an executive branch that basically took over the Supreme Court and put political cronies on it, canceled all funding and all function of the Congress, both House and Senate, went further and actually ordered the Capitol Police to attack the United States Congress, if we tried to conduct our functions, cut off all operations, no salaries, no paper, no ink, nothing, no lights uh, in terms of being able to meet, in essence, completely wiped out an elected National Assembly under the Constitution of that country. Imagine further if they announced we're not holding elections. We're not holding elections this year for governors in the legislature, legislative branch. We're not holding elections in the future for president. In fact, we're going to put together this fraudulent uh, assembly and we are going to impose a Cuban-style dictatorship under the guise of some sort of popular uh, governance. That is the situation in Venezuela. Imagine even further, if, as, an, as an element of all this, uh, elements within the government armed non-uniformed individuals and ordered them into the streets to attack protesters and beat them uh, as part of uh, militias. That is the situation in Venezuela. Or 
conduct trumped-up charges, where they basically arrest political opponents, accuse them of ridiculous things, and jail them for extensive periods of time without charge and without recourse to the courts. That is the situation in Venezuela. And that is what brings us to this point. For uh, what the people of Venezuela, the overwhelming majority of people in Venezuela, are asking for is simply a return to constitutional order. And I would say to you that it is not just the people that don't like the current leadership. It is people that actually agreed with Hugo Chavez. There are actually people that were supporters of Hugo Chavez and of the Constitution of Venezuela that have now aligned themselves with that cause, simply not because they ideologically agree with some members of the opposition, but because above all else, they want to see the rule of law restored. Chief among those voices is the current Attorney General of Venezuela, who on a steady pace over a, or a period of time has begun to be critical of the Maduro regime. Today, she's now being charged with crimes for having done so. This is the horrifying situation. And if on the 30th of July, they move forward with this con constituent assembly, which is a fraud, it will be for the first time in my recollection a nullification of the constitutional democratic order of a nation in this hemisphere in probably over 40 years. There have been coup d'etats. There have been uh, strongmen that have emerged from time to time and disrupted the constitutional and democratic order. And there have more cer most certainly been non-democratic leaders elected who then have not governed as Democrats. But we have never seen a structural imposition of a Cuban-style model in over four decades in the region. It would be tragic. It would be tragic anywhere. It is especially tragic that it is happening in Venezuela, a nation blessed with educated entrepreneurial people, with a deep culture of democracy, and by the way, one of the richest nations in the world. One of the richest nations in the world with natural resources and human resources that today, its people cannot buy toilet paper, cannot buy toothpaste, and cannot access basic medications in their hospitals. All of it the direct result of the Maduro regime's decision. And finally, further complicating this matter is the existence within that government of narco-trafficking elements. Uh, multiple leaders and figures in that regime who, in addition to operating governmental entities, are also involved in narco-trafficking activity to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions. Uh, we have a catastrophe. And uh, I conclude my remarks by saying that it is my hope that we can continue to work through organisms like the OAS in partnership with nations in the region such as Mexico and Canada, Brazil, Argentina, among others who have uh, stood forward on this. I'm encouraged to see statements out of the European Union, out of Spain, and multiple other nations that have pronounced themselves on this. I'm hopeful of that. I think that is the ideal way forward. I also know this, and I do not speak for the president, but I have certainly spoken to the president, and I will only reiterate what he has already said, and I've been saying this now for a number of days. It is my, I have 100% confidence that if, if democracy is destroyed once and for all in Venezuela on the 30th in terms of the Maduro regime, the president of the United States is prepared to act unilaterally in a significant and swift way, uh, and, um, and that is not a threat. That is the reporting of the truth. And, uh, but in any event, we are hopeful that there is another way forward, but time is running out. And I certainly, within that context, uh, continue to be hopeful that a real resolution can come about in the OAS, but not through some fake negotiation designed to extend and buy time, but through a process that restores the democratic order, restores the National Assembly, holds free, fair, and internationally supervised elections, and frees political prisoners. 
that there's nothing really to negotiate there other than who's in charge of making that happen. Anything else is a waste of time and nothing but a diversionary tactic on behalf of the Maduro regime to try to hold on to power. So we are very excited that the Secretary General is here. We look forward to hearing from him. And I recognize the uh, ranking member, uh, Senator Menendez. Well, well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, for holding this most important hearing today. And I especially want to thank our esteemed witness, uh, the Secretary General, uh, Luis Almagro. We are fully aware that it is not quite standard for the sitting Secretary General of an intergovernmental organization to testify before this committee. But your testimony and participation today speak to the gravity and importance of the crisis in Venezuela and in our hemisphere. I want to say that uh, you have been an outspoken and vocal advocate for the values that bind democratic nations together and form the basis of regional and international cooperation that will ultimately bring peace and prosperity to our hemisphere. Given the stature of your position, I appreciate your leadership on Venezuela in particular, but beyond that, the important point of ensuring that the OAS stands for the principles of the rule of law, of democratic values, and shared responsibility, in essence, the democratic charter uh, of the OAS. Now, between the referendum last Sunday, the proposed election on the 30th, and the ongoing humanitarian suffering of many Venezuelans, this hearing could not be more timely. The more than 7 million Venezuelans who braved intimidation and violence from their president to express themselves through a peaceful democratic process are a testament to the remnants of democracy that still thrive in Venezuela. They not only overwhelmingly express rejection of Maduro's efforts to further consolidate his own power, but also show the hemisphere and the world the power of organization and mobilization in the face of an autocratic president. Venezuelans who have for the past few years suffered a serious humanitarian crisis. Nearly 90% of the population reported last year that they did not have enough money to buy basic food supplies and diseases that had previously been eradicated from the country, like malaria and diphtheria, have reemerged, are still marching in the streets and petitioning for their basic rights. Even as their president prevents international support for the basic humanitarian needs of its citizens, blocking an effort by the National Assembly to facilitate international assistance, they are voting to demand fundamental freedoms. Despite the suffering of his people and the international outcry, Maduro insists on clinging on to the shreds of a failed ideology his predecessor and a few colleagues in the region still champion. Without going into a full history of the calamitous actions he has taken in the name of the people or the revolution, some highlights include dissolving the National Assembly and then keeping the legislative, uh, holding the legislative body in contempt preventing the democratically elected assembly from passing laws, stacking the Supreme Court with loyalists to prevent an effective judicial branch or check on executive power, jailing opposition leaders and preventing them from running for office, expelling foreign media and curbing freedom of the press, violently attacking peaceful protesters, giving control of food supply to the military, who turned the responsibility of providing for the population into a profitable black market operation. This is happening in our own hemisphere with significant consequences for regional peace and stability. In 2016, Venezuelans became the top United States asylum seekers with claims increasing 150% 
from 2015 to 2016. Venezuelans are also fleeing to neighboring Colombia, itself in the process of implementing a precarious peace accord and Brazil. Without vigilance and accountability, our adversaries will be quick to step in. So I was pleased to work with the chairman earlier this year to bring the Treasury Department's attention to Venezuela's state-owned oil company, Bedevesa's mortgage of debt to a Russian state-owned company, Rosneft. Bedevesa, in turn, owns Citgo, which has significant infrastructure here in the United States. And this deal could potentially put critical energy infrastructure into the hands of Russia. China has also stepped in to help Venezuela's flailing economy. In 2014, I was, I was pleased to have the Congress pass into law the Venezuela Defense of Human Rights and Civil Society Act, which imposed sanctions on officials in the government most responsible for the erosion of democracy. And I'm pleased to see Congress extend those sanctions in 2017. I also urge the full committee to consider the Venezuela Humanitarian Assistance and Defense of Democratic Governance Act, which we introduced in May. This comprehensive legislation authorizes humanitarian support, expands the scope of sanctions, calls on the administration to develop a multilateral stra strategy, and express support for the OAS's democracy restoration and election monitoring efforts. The United States, of course, cannot act alone. Democratic countries in the Western Hemisphere must be united in our values to uphold the rule of law and to champion democratic values. In that vein, it is critical that the Organization of American States maintain pressure not just on Venezuela, but to try to ensure that member countries are working in a unified fashion. I know the Secretary General is, has that as part of his mission. I have been disappointed to see many countries in the region, particularly in the Caribbean, continue to stand with the assault on Venezuelan democracy or refrain from explicitly condemning undemocratic actions at the OAS. Along with Senator Rubio, I have expressed the importance of standing up with the people of Venezuela and unequivocally against usurpations of power and undemocratic actions to various foreign dignitaries. Uh, I know that I am banned from going to Venezuela uh, by the Maduro regime, uh, but I will continue to speak out uh, for democracy and human rights in the Western Hemisphere, wherever it may be, and certainly in Venezuela. Mr. Secretary, we welcome you and we look forward to your uh, insights. Thank you to the ranking member. Uh, Secretary, thank you for being here today and we recognize you for your statement. Senator Rubio, Senator Menendez, members of the subcommittee, thank you for this opportunity to be with you today as we address the ongoing crisis in Venezuela. <clears throat> the OES, the Organization of American States, is the only multilateral forum that has taken action against the dictatorship in Venezuela. On April 3, 2017, the Permanent Council passed Resolution 1078 declaring an alteration of the constitutional order in Venezuela. The OAS declared the Supreme Court decision to suspend the powers of the National Assembly as inconsistent with democratic practices and constitute an alternation of the constitutional order in Venezuela. We urged the Venezuelan government to ensure the full restoration of the democratic order. We requested that the Venezuelan government safeguard the separation and independence of powers. We 
says that we stand ready to support measures to return to democratic order and to take diplomatic initiatives to foster the restoration of the democratic institutional system in accordance with the OAS founding charter and the Inter-American Democratic Charter. The international community has a vital responsibility when faced with tyranny and repression. Venezuela is going through a decisive moment. <clears throat> in play is the sovereignty of the people and the survival of the constitution, the last link of the country with the rule of law. In 100 days of citizen protests, nearly 100 people have been killed, the majority of them young people, many of them minors. The number of political prisoners has risen to 433, and 415 civilians have been brought before military courts. The systematic violating of human rights and basic freedoms is the worst attack against the Constitution. The regime proposes more abuse, more repression, increasingly less freedom, and the tool that it proposes to institutionalize this is a constituent assembly. A constituent assembly imposed by decree, without the people and against the people, setting the will of the dictatorship above the popular will expressed through universal and direct vote. I echo the words of the Venezuelan Episcopal Conference. The mission constituent project seeks to impose a dictatorial regime on the country. In addition, by privileging in its composition sectoral voting basis with no legal support, it violates the right to all people to elect and be elected and the constitutional principle of the proportional representation of the population according to territorial distribution. And it underlines that the National Constituent Assembly would have supraconstitutional power with the aim of eliminating the current state bodies, mainly the National Assembly, legitimately elected <coughs> by the people. It is the right and the responsibility of all citizens to participate in decisions relating to their own development. This is also a necessary condition for the full and effective exercise of democracy, promoting and fostering diverse forms of participation strengthen democracy. We are in a time in which mediation efforts are taking place. All of them, of course, welcome because they demonstrate the commitment of the international community to the search for a solution to the crisis. In this context, the institution that is in the best condition to act is the Episcopal Conference because it is Venezuelan, as we have said, because it knows people's feelings, because it knows better than anyone the history of this process, and because of its immense moral authority. From the international community, we have stripped the regime of its impunity. The alteration of the constitutional order has been recognized and denounced. The return of democracy to the country has been called for. Sanctions have been applied to corrupt and criminal affiliates to the regime. The freeing of political prisoners have been requested, and various mediation forms have been offered and will be offered. The work of the OES has been and is essential in this sense, but the solution to the crisis is Venezuela. Over the last months, the regime in Venezuela has buried the democracy, the separation of power, justice, civil guarantees, political, economic, and social rights, as well as the principles that constitute a legitimate government. 
All the members of the current illegitimate government are responsible, and the role of the president of the National Electoral Council, Tibisay Lucena, has been crucial in the institutional collapse. An independent, impartial, healthy electoral body with adequate technical capabilities is fundamental to guarantee the political rights of citizens. Its responsibility is nothing less than the protection of the strict respect for the right to the political expression of the people, the only <coughs> that is legitimate to carry on the, uh, uh, the country. Number, the formula announced by Tibisay Lucena to the National Constituent Assembly is as technically absurd as is unconstitutional and undemocratic. The convocation of the Constituent Assembly is taking place outside of that stipulated in Article 347 of the Constitution, which states that Venezuelan people are the only ones who possess the original constituent power. In this way, it definitely puts an end to the right of the Venezuelan people to democracy. People like Tibisay Lucena, that continue stripping democracy of its content, work to serve the consolidation of the interest of the dictatorship imposed through the suffering of his people, sustained by the killing of his people, by the political imprisonment of opposition leaders, and by torture. <clears throat> the Venezuelan judiciary also has violated the fundamental principles by which the people are ensured justice, its independence. It has become an essential part of the organizational chart of institutional corruption. If justice does not follow the principles and values of democracy and the rule of law, this accelerates the legitimate fun functioning of the state. The Bolivarian Guard, National Guard and its head are directly responsible for the repression that has murdered, imprisoned and tortured people. The brutal repression shows the National Guard as the perpetrator of the violation of rights to life, freedoms, and guarantees of due process. Behind every detainee, every political prisoner, behind every person tortured and killed, there is something institutionally responsible in Venezuela. The Minister of Internal Relations, Nestor Reverol, Benavides Torres, General Savarse, led the two institutions, led the two institutions charged with the use of force in Venezuela. In this sense, they are responsible for every aggression, every shot, and every death. The return of democracy to Venezuela and the restoration of the rule of law is urgent. Legitimacy will only be returned to its institution when those in power assume their functions according to the Constitution and the popular mandate. The Minister of Defense, General Vladimir Padrino Lopez has separated the army, armed forces from their fundamental commitments to respect the constitution, the laws, and the institution itself. What we can do? We need to speak at the highest level, at the level of presidents, to make joint declarations at the highest level. Member states and leaders of the world must speak up all together and explore what tools they have, at their, they have at their disposal to act. I'm often asked about sanctions. And let me be clear. The sanctions won't do any worse to the suffering of the Venezuelan people. <clears throat> A 
clear message must be sent to Maduro and his colleagues that the criminals whose corruption, whose strategy, and whose orders have created this crisis and killed countless of their citizens should target it and held account. <clears throat> we support sanctions to individuals that have committed crimes and are accused of corruptions, and we need more economic pressure on a government that is investing the money that earns through the natural resources that belong to the people to fight and kill that very same people. <clears throat> Torture is a crime against humanity. We intend to support investigation and we ask everybody to do so that may help to identify the practices of torture in Venezuela and those responsible for them, especially in front of the International Criminal Court. All our actions should be oriented to resolve this agenda. The agenda is free, transparent, just general elections, free and po po the, po the political prisoners, restore the power to the National Assembly, and an emergency plan to resolve the crisis, the humanitarian crisis of the country. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. And um, I'll be brief in my questions. They're rather to the point. From your understanding on the issue of revenue, to the extent that Venezuela continues to derive revenues from its oil industry, is it, is it your understanding that money is being used simply to try to finance its debt at a discount, or in essence, they're selling that oil now at a, at a steep discount? Is it not correct that the majority of the revenues they continue to generate are largely being used for corruption and or to finance the debt, and that very little of it is being used? And, and it is the reason why, for example, there's a humanitarian crisis in food medicine, and other matters? If we see uh, all uh, uh, figures about uh, health and uh, nutrition in Venezuela, uh, we see that uh, practically the government is not investing at all in its people. Uh, all figures uh, are awful and demonstrate a clear crisis in the humanitarian crisis in the country. The rates of uh, child mortality, the rate, uh, or rates of uh, maternal mortality, uh, uh, the rates of uh, mal bad nutrition of, of, of children. <clears throat> uh, diseases that uh, were extinguished in Venezuela for decades, like uh, malaria or diphtheria, have reappeared in the country. So we have definitely... Uh, a government that is not investing at all in its people, but just to try to buy some wills, uh, the will of through uh, the club uh, uh, bags given to in order to to achieve some political support, and uh, of course to uh, keep working in their political agenda in in, in the continent and and, uh, and abroad. Nothing is improving. Uh, the government of Venezuela is, uh, is practically the antithesis of any government. Any government will try to bring the crisis down to problems, problems back down to difficulties, and dif to make the difficulties disappear. What we see in Venezuela is the contrary. From nothing they create problems. From the problems they create crisis, and further they escalate this crisis. <clears throat> the situation of the people shows that the money of the national resources that belong to that people is used to kill these people. The, the only action of government that we see is repression these days. The uh, question of humanitarian aid and assistance, which the 
the Maduro regime continues to block because they continue to refuse to acknowledge they have a humanitarian crisis. There was, however, a negotiation sponsored by the Vatican, mediated talks in November of 2016, and there was a discussion about establishing a channel for allowing humanitarian aid to reach Venezuela, possibly through Caritas Venezuela, which is an organization affiliated with the Catholic Church. To date, that has not happened. Uh, could, for those who were not involved or did not see that process of negotiation with, when it comes to humanitarian aid, uh, to this day, are they allowing humanitarian aid into the country? They are not allowing humanitarian aid into the country. And, uh, and the only measure that somehow uh, released some pressure, uh, some social pressure, was when they opened the border with Colombia in order to allow the that people that live in border uh, states to be able to uh, to buy their basic needs in on the other side. But uh, no uh, international help is able to get into the country. Uh, there is uh, definitely a need of for action about that. And when you do that, these political measures, uh, the expense of the suffering of people is... Uh, uh, the most awful way of doing politics and is the most covert way of doing politics. The, as you're aware, the Treasury Department of the United States has imposed financial sanctions on at least 17 Venezuelans for narcotics trafficking, including nine current or former Venezuelan officials. For example, in February, the Treasury Department imposed drug trafficking sanctions against the vice president of the country. There are also very strong allegations made by defectors and others about the involvement of an individual by the name of Diosdado Cabello, uh, who I, in my personal view, based on everything I have seen, he's not simply a political leader. He is, in my view, the Pablo Escobar of Venezuela today. He is a narco-trafficker. What, how complicated in this political dynamic is the existence of this narco-trafficking presence in Venezuela to, to the political overall crisis? When, uh, when you see the structure of government and you see... And the, the closest relatives of the uh, presidential family uh, are in jail in New York and are judged in New York for narco-traffic. Then you see that the vice president is uh, the second in charge, uh, is, uh, has its uh, resources for about $2 billion in the United States that have been <coughs> uh, sanctioned. When you see that uh, number three is uh, that uh, Minister of Interior, Reverol, is also accused by the DEA by narcotraffic, then you have really a serious problem uh, because it looks like the whole structure is taken by this, uh, uh, by, by narcotraffic. So <clears throat> it's not how you move out of, how you push a dictatorship out of uh, uh, and bring back democracy. It's also now how you dismantle narco-traffic from the state, and that will, is a completely new challenge for, for, for our organization and for our community. Uh, that is, the, the, is a very serious problem, like corruption is, is, is a very serious problem. Uh, Venezuela is the most corrupt country in the continent. That is, in itself shows that now, nobody is judged by corruption in the country. The only <clears throat> way to judge them is it is international, like the cases that involved corruption of PDVSA in Houston. So 
to attack this, uh, these issues definitely is, is an imperative in, in all our country. To apply sanctions that can help solutions in this field are extremely necessary. And, and the, my final question, at least for this round, because Senator Kane has joined us as well, and I want to make sure multiple members have a chance to speak to you about this topic, is the following. It is our natural inclination uh, as a nation and as a people and in the region, as is your job of working in a, in a multinational forum, to seek for there to be a negotiated process forward. In, in this perfect world, the Maduro regime would realize that this is unsustainable and there would be some sort of conversation, a serious one, uh, about holding elections for governor, holding elections for president, freeing political prisoners and creating that space. Um, however, and I, I have, while I am not against that happening, I don't believe it is going to happen and there's no indications that it's going to happen. And I would ask you to give us some insight into your views on negotiations, not in general, but as it pertains to Venezuela, and in particular how the Maduro regime has used the, the ruse of dialogue and negotiation to buy time and divide the opposition and extend uh, itself and in, in perpetuate itself in, in power. Yes, uh, we have seen uh, we have seen that, and, uh, and we have uh, denounced that. The way that the, uh, the government uses dialogue is just to uh, achieve two things, mainly. To release internal pressure and to release uh, international pressure. Um, that happened in the first uh, week of November last year. Uh, there were not a single commitment to uh, deal with the agenda that is necessary to resolve in Venezuela. In fact... Uh, if in Venezuela uh, we don't uh, call for free and general elections, if we don't free the political prisoners, if we don't reestablish the constitutional powers to the different branches of government, then uh, no solution is possible. We can go around that agenda as much as we can, but there will not be a solution. The government so far has not been able to uh, push for a solution like that. And, and it is very clear that the, the main task, and we saw it, saw it last year during the, the procedure of the recall referendum, we see it this year again, is how they remain in power, no matter what. Uh, imagine that in any country in the continent could be demonstrations and 100 demonstrators were killed anywhere, anywhere. That government wouldn't couldn't be standing anymore. It's, it's against the basic rules of, uh, of democracy and, uh, and human rights. Uh, the government, when they cannot use the, this tool of dialogue, they just go to repression. And then they try to move back to, re, to create some conditions of a dialogue with, without facing the real agenda of, of the country. Uh, I think uh, these days uh, we, uh, you know, when um, when a real negotiation to uh, to to put down a dictatorship happens, it is because uh, the dictators come and say, "Look, how is the best way we get out?" and and that is how it starts. It doesn't start by bringing down the uh, National Constituent Assembly. It, it, it doesn't start by trying to uh, create uh, 
side effects uh, with, with, with the negotiations. You have to address the real agenda. So you put a date for elections. Okay, then we can uh, we can have a dialogue. We you free the political prisoners. Okay, we can have a dialogue. You establish the power of the national assembly. Okay, we can have a dialogue. If nothing like that happens, then the conditions definitely are, are not are not there. You. It is awful that the people of Venezuela have been condemned to be killed in the streets or to be submitted to the peace that the dictatorship provides that is complete lack of rights. Well, as I turn it to the ranking member, my observation is when the Pope says he's no longer interested in continuing to participate in the dialogue because he doesn't think the Maduro government is serious about it, when the Pope says that, <laughs> you got a, it's a pretty strong indication that, uh, of how they've used these negotiations as a farce. The ranking member. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Secretary, for your testimony. I don't often read from the written testimony of witnesses, but you synthesize your testimony in order for brevity. I think there are things here worthy of reading into the record. These are your words in your statement. The reluctance of the international community to act in defense of democracy has allowed the situation to deteriorate incrementally, but consistently, to the point where today it has become a full-blown humanitarian and security crisis. Every step of the way, it has been too little and too late. The Democratic Charter was designed as a preventative tool. When it was agreed, it established a very explicit authority to act in every signatory state when necessity requires, which is often what I recite when I'm asked by reporters about the interventionist elements of our views. Venezuela signed on to the Democratic Charter, and the Democratic Charter calls as you very explicitly note here, authority to act in every signatory state when necessity requires. When use as intended, it can prevent or stop any backsliding in the region's hard-earned democracies. It is true that only the people of Venezuela must solve the crisis in their country. However, in Venezuela, the words of civilians are met with the weapons of the regime. The people of Venezuela peacefully took to the streets in defense of their fundamental rights and freedoms. The regime responded strategically and systematically, targeting an unarmed civilian population with violence and terror. More than 100 people have been killed since the, pro since the protests began. That is, one close, is close to one person each day. Of those killed, more than 30, and there's a very young audience here, were under the age of 21. 24 were students. 14 were teenagers. Since the protests began, more than 450 investigations into human rights violations have been opened. Civil society estimates that the number of civilians injured is above 15,000. As of July 22nd, there are 444 political prisoners in Venezuela, the highest number since the military dictatorship of Marcos Perez Jimenez. These statistics do not include the thousands of lives lost in the humanitarian crisis. The regime, I continue to quote from your testimony, has consistently rejected any and all offers of international humanitarian assistance. Instead, they have weaponized what little resources they do have, selecting who gets what. <coughs> President Maduro, his cabinet, and his military leaders 
have blood on their hands and they must be held accountable. End quote. That is not the views of some members of the United States Senate or the statements of some members. It is the view of many of us. But it is the statements of the Secretary General of the OAS. And it is a powerful uh, statement. Uh, and uh, it's so sad. Can you pull that up for me? It is so sad in a country uh, that has enormous human capital and tremendous potential. Uh, so, Mr. Secretary, lo felicito por su postura vertical y su coraje y su compromiso a la democracia. I really appreciate, uh, you know, it's very often that in diplomacy we mitigate uh, what is clearly the harsh and the light of day can't be mitigated, and I appreciate your straightforwardness. I want to ask you, and I don't, and I don't subscribe this as a personal failure. I, it's institutionally I'm trying to understand. Uh, in, Ju in June, the OAS failed to garner uh, the 23 votes necessary in favor of a resolution on Venezuela that was introduced by Peru. I go through some, and I, I may, this is not an official sheet, so I may be wrong and I will stand corrected, if, but I'm going to read from what was a photograph of a sheet of who voted how. So here are the people who abstained, Antigua and Barbudo, Ecuador, El Salvador, Grenada, Haiti, Republica Dominicana, Suriname, Trinidad and Tobago, and then the people who voted outright no, Bolivia, Dominica, Nicaragua, St. Kitts and Nevis, and St. Vincent's and the Grenadines. Uh, why do you think that you could not achieve 23 votes uh, in what is so clear. I mean, your statement is so clear, <coughs> so unambiguous, so powerful. Why do you think that countries in the face of that would abstain and or outright vote no? Because countries vote because of their interests and not because of principles and values always. And uh, they have a strong economic, political, social links uh, with the government of Venezuela. And those links, they uh, definitely value a lot enough not to vote uh, against Venezuela in, uh, in those circumstances. In any case, <coughs> I have to say that uh, 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 the importance of that resolution was to create a, a group of friends in order to deal with the Venezuelan case. Uh, those days also, the, the last two weeks before that, happened that uh, were something like eight or nine initiatives of group of friends, mediators, and facilitators for the Venezuelan crisis. So um, that, uh, that solution that uh, could have helped uh, Venezuela, I think, uh, in fact... Uh, I don't think the government would have accepted that uh, that way of, of, of negotiating. Uh, in any case, uh, uh, we have to keep working on, on those votes and we have to keep making evident what is going on in Venezuela. And, uh, and the situation is, is, is clear enough, but uh, also we have to... Um, uh, to say it around, we have to be uh, uh, to be loud about, and uh, and I think it's also would be 
extremely useful, as I, as I said before, that this group of friends, in any case, can start working, and can start working at the level of presidents, and can make joint declarations. In fact, the most important, the, the biggest uh, countries, those big GDPs, the big, biggest populations, they were there in that votation, concerned about the situation in Venezuela. So it could uh, be just, uh, it is possible to do it and to implement it and, 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 and to create that group of friends at that level of precedent and to make it work and to have a loud voice about what is going on in Venezuela. I, Mr. Chairman, I'd like to introduce for the record uh, all of the names of the countries that did vote in favor. And for the interest of time, I have not mentioned them all because they should be applauded. But I do think it's important to name and shame those who uh, violate, who in essence voted to allow a continuing violation. That's the way I look at the vote. If you abstain or you vote no, in the midst of what is clearly a violation of the Democratic Charter, the OAS, for which you are a, a, par a party and signatory to, uh, then you are in essence permitting it. Do you think, last question before, I have many other questions, but I will cease because of my colleague here is waiting. Uh, do you believe that uh, I look at all of the Caribbean countries that you know, so many of them uh, voted either to abstain or no. Uh, do you believe uh, that, in fact, uh, Petro Caribe uh, and its influence have uh, uh, influence on some of the voting patterns here without specifying any specific country? You see, uh, there is something that this uh, um, makes this case very particular, and is that... Uh, we are dealing with a big country that is, has fallen into a dictatorship. That is uh, something that the organization usually didn't do. Uh, usually what we, the organization, and in general, international organizations choose are small countries with small populations that have a significant coup d'etat and then the action comes. When we have seen this process of Venezuela, uh, we see that these kind of problems are, uh, happen in the past. I mean, uh, I can quote, for example, the case of uh, the mission that observed the elections uh, where uh, uh, Fujimori uh, made a fraud. And that, uh, that permanent council, those days, uh, didn't uh, approve the, the report of the, of the mission and supported Fujimori. The countries were, that were sitting there supported Fujimori in that case. So it's not the first time that happens that uh, uh, it is uh, um, difficult to collect the votes of countries that they just don't want to, to vote against their national interest or their political interest. So we have to keep working, and um, the principles are there, the values are there, and, uh, and we may be able to, to, to keep convincing people and keep convincing countries. We have convinced a lot of public opinion. We have taken the impunity away from the government, and we keep pushing. Uh, if we see the process since uh, the 31st of May when I presented my first report till now. When I presented my first report, I was practically alone, talking about political prisoners in Venezuela. 
talking about the need to go to that that to implement the recall referendum that was the institutional solution of the country and uh, and and of course uh, to stop uh, stripping the powers of the national assembly if we see me myself alone there and now we have we had 20 votes in cancun we have improved a lot and and i think if you ask me uh, and i support the decisions of the country to that went through uh, the process of a uh, uh, cons consultation meeting of Minister of Foreign Affairs. But the rules of the meetings of uh, for Minister of Foreign Affairs is that that decision has to be approved by two-thirds of, of, of the member states. If we would have gone through the application of the Inter-American Democratic Charter, we should have just needed a simple majority. And that, I think, was the problem. More, the, the procedure... Than, uh, than the number of, of, of votes. Thank you. The, and the, the uh, ranking member has entered into the record without objection a portion of your statement that he read. He also has entered the name of the 20 countries, and that, of course, will be entered into the record without objection. And I would just note, for the record, that those countries, those 20 countries, represent a billion people, and 90% of the population of the, of, of the member states are represented in those 20 countries. With the senator from uh, Virginia's indulgence, I just want to go ahead and put some things on the record. I don't want to forget. Uh, I'm going to ask the three reports that you presented to the Permanent Council, Secretary General uh, of the OAS, on the situation in Venezuela be entered into the record as part of the statement. The first two reports lay out the deterioration of the humanitarian situation, as well as the complete alteration of the constitutional and democratic order. They also represent a series of recommendations that offer guidance for the international community. The third report was released this week. It details the strategic and systematic violent repression targeting the unarmed civilian population in Venezuela. And in addition, I also ask that the Permanent Council Resolution 1078, recognizing the alteration of the constitutional order, be entered into the record. And finally, this is interesting, a report from the Office of the Attorney General of the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela, uh, meaning the Attorney General of, theoretically, the Maduro regime itself, uh, released a report on July 10th detailing the 92 deaths of demonstrators at the hands of Venezuelan security forces during the first 100 days. And I ask, and, and without objection, it will be entered into the record. Uh, Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you, Mr. Secretary General. This is a very important hearing, and I think we're all in agreement on the, um, on the diagnosis, and we're looking for the prescription. KSR, and... One of the questions I want to ask to follow up on Senator Menendez's question is, is this, the vote in Cancun. You, you started in a lonely position, as you say, and then in Cancun, 20 votes. What would the effect have been in your, in your estimation if the vote in Cancun had followed this referendum, 7.2 million Venezuelans turning out in the referendum uh, and overwhelmingly rejecting uh, the, you know, the, the prospect of a dramatic rewrite by the Maduro government of the Constitution. Do you think there are abstains or, or no votes within that Cancun vote that seeing this significant turnout and the, you know, significant will of these voters uh, might rethink their position, or do you think if we had this Cancun vote, it would likely come out the same? I'm curious. Um, it's, uh, it's not so easy to speculate about... Uh, in vote in, in international organizations. Um, it will depend on the circumstances. It will, be, will depend a lot on the words that we use for the resolutions <clears throat> that we um, 
we are trying to instrument. The thing is, um, uh, in any case, that uh, uh, I'm extremely positive about the 20 votes, and I am extremely positive about how loud the Minister of Foreign Affairs were during the, the General Assembly in Cancun. I think all those very positive actions that we have uh, that happened in, in Cancun. And uh, it was not at all uh, a failure. Uh, I, I wouldn't describe it like that, not in the wildest dreams. Um, Let me uh, ask it this way, if I could. Yes. What, what would you predict, then, setting aside voting in the OAS, what would you predict uh, would be the follow-on consequence of this referendum vote, which was so strong? Do you, do you think it will have any effect on the situation going forward, or is the government just going to say we don't care about it, and will it then you know, sink back in silencio? Uh, uh, the government didn't like it, and, uh, and will never... Uh, and, but shows something very positive. Uh, it, it, extraordinary capacity to, of organization mm -hmm. and mobilization of the opposition and the National Assembly. Uh, we have to see the, the positive of what went on there. The government is, is, uh, is not ready yet to respond uh, in, the, in a positive way to that consultation that was done. Mm -hmm. the, those, those questions that were asked, the way that people answer, are mandatory for all of us, mm -hmm. and we should take it as mandatory for all of us are mandatory, in, in, fa in fact, for the president of uh, the Re Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela, and he should be implementing this, uh, this measure now. But that is not the, the logic of the government. Mm. Uh, the logic of the government is uh, keep playing games, always find somebody that will keep playing games with them, and, uh, and if the Playing the game doesn't work, like uh, uh, Senator Rubio said, then will come more repression on the country. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, how long can hold that? They can hold that uh, the repression. I don't know. But the, the scenarios that we see is, are are uh, very ugly for Venezuela. Are awful for Venezuela. Let, let me ask. Uh, switch to another topic yes. that's related. Um, the Attorney General Luis Ortega had been a loyalist and ally of the Maduro regime. But in March of this year, as you described, she spoke out against an attempt by the Supreme Court to strip the National Assembly of powers. And she's since been critical of President Maduro for creating a, quote, a climate of terror. The Supreme Court has banned her from leaving the country and frozen all of her assets. How significant is her decision to break with the regime? And would you see additional prospects or think there would be additional prospects for key defectors from the regime, people who have been allies to defect and become opponents in the, in the near future? There, there have been. I mean, uh, we have also have to see that uh, a substantial part of the Chavism had uh, democratic rules. And uh, most of them, they believe, a lot of them, they believe in democracy. <clears throat> and, uh, and the permanent electoral exercise that Venezuela did during the years of Chavez, of course, came to an end because mainly dictators, they like elections when they are going to win them. If not, they are not useful for them. I've been on the side of a losing election recently. I like, <laughs> I like elections I'm going to win, too. I mean, that, that's not just dictators. <laughs> well, I won and lost one in the same year. Try that. <laughs> but uh, 
But that's a very good thing, and uh, and talks very well of you and uh, and of the system, and uh, and and of course more people have moved. Uh, former Minister of Interior Miguel Rodriguez Torres has moved. You know that uh, the uh, there are something like about one hundred uh, officers of the military uh, of the army that are in jail. So. I, I, there are a lot of cracks in in that uh, institution in that organization so somehow uh, we we expect that more things like, uh, more people may 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 come to the sides of of democracy at the end of the day excellent let me ask one other question i I was pleased to see the uh, Trump administration state that they're looking at new sanctions against Venezuela, especially if they were to go f through with the government's plan to try to do a dramatic rewrite of laws in the Constitution. Um, your testimony talked about sanctions as having a, a significant and salutary impact. Um, it is imperative that sanctions are not worse than suffering in the Venezuelan people, but however, targeted sanctions that hold those criminals responsible for the crisis and repression to account have been helpful. The news reports that I've read in Bloomberg suggest that the administration is definitely looking at targeted sanctions against key individuals, but also uh, there is some suggestion, there's, there is tension inside the White House about which measures to adopt and whether to wait to see how Venezuela's constitutional issue plays out. Among the measures creating division is whether to impose some sort of ban on crude oil imports from Venezuela. What, what opinion would you have of that, just to give us your, your thought and perspective about how that might help or hurt the situation? Yeah. You know, dictatorships, they only fall if they are pushed from within the country, from inside the country. They are not, uh, unless you bomb them, and I, that is not a solution, definitely, uh, there is no way to push a dictatorship down from uh, abroad. So sanctions may work or not, and may not work. It depends of the internal pressure in the country. For example, there are sanctions that have worked. Those against uh, the apartheid in South Africa, they worked, and at the end there were a democracy in South Africa. Uh, but the whole country was committed to have uh, to have democracy and to have one man, one vote. Uh, there are cases where these sanctions have not worked uh, because uh, the internal pressure was not enough to bring the dictatorship down, like uh, be the Cuban the Cuban case, for example. So, at the end of the day, the most dramatic measure that can be taken are sanctions. But those sanctions have to be in order to back the people, in order to uh, regain democracy. But it depends of the people of the country, and it will depend on the Venezuelans and their struggle to be able to achieve this solution. I think sanctions should be supportive of the Venezuelan people. I think sanctions should further come and should have further economic pressure on, on, on the Maduro uh, dictatorship. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Senator from Colorado. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, thank you, Mr. Secretary, for being here today. Uh, I had an interesting conversation with a gentleman last night uh, from Colombia. He grew up in Colombia, lives in the United States now, and he was talking about uh, when they were children, if they wanted goods, if they wanted uh, certain fresh products or produce, they would uh, go to Venezuela, uh, and uh, they would have access to the goods, the produce that they couldn't get in Colombia. And he talked about uh, the excitement that they had in the family when they were looking for that to, to bring it home 
Uh, and of course now what is happening in Venezuela is, Venezuela is uh, truly tragic because that's certainly not the case today. Uh, I want to get a little bit into some of the global policies affecting uh, Venezuela as well. According to a report from Brookings Institute on May 8, 2017, China's China, the banks in China lent about $118 billion to Latin America between 2007 and 2014. During this time period, about 53% went to Venezuela. It's about $63 billion to Venezuela from Chinese, Chinese banks. And so could you talk a little bit about the extent of Chinese involvement in Venezuela, whether it's helping to prop up the Maduro government, uh, your perspective? Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I can talk a, a, a little, of course, uh, there are economic, Chinese economic interest in, in, in Venezuela. Of course, uh, I'm sure the, uh, China would like to have those interests completely safe. And, and that means that uh, of, they will uh, deal with the political situation in an objective manner. <clears throat> uh, I think uh, the interests there were mainly in projects of in infrastructure. There were a lot of trade, and of course, there are big interest in uh, in energy, and uh, and those interests uh, will will remain there. And I think they they don't have a, a strong connection or with the institutional situation of the country. The institutional situation of the country it happened uh, in in parallel in parallel to that, and were not affected by this uh, by this relation with with China. Thank you. Uh, and uh, with that investment infrastructure or otherwise, uh, what type of leverage does China hold in Venezuela and could the U.S. work with them to find a solution there? Um, mainly there were, um, there were investments in the industrial sector. There were investment in the um, uh, in the oil exploration, exploitation. There were investments in infrastructure, um, Roads and and and, and ports and 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 sources of for energy. So that yes, the microphone. You have to. <laughs> yes. It's, okay. Yeah, yes. And um, so uh, mainly those were the business I I, I remember. Uh, but uh, so I I think this uh, uh, also there were some financial uh, agreements. Of course, uh, the exchange of oil. There were a big joint commission, uh, but that is um, like the, a normal, a normal uh, bilateral relation, let's say. Okay, and so, in your opinion, uh, the U.S. should not be concerned about financing Chinese financing of the Venezuelan government. Uh, I don't have. Uh, I, I don't think we should have a, a concern about that, uh, and I think um, those. Uh, um, those agreements were done in good faith by the Chinese government, and, and of course, uh, the, uh, a new Venezuelan government should be able to uh, reformulate them uh, as uh, uh, possible to any agreement with, with China. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. And, and just for a point of clarity on it, and I'm going off the Congressional Research Service here. Uh, first of all, let's describe the situation in Venezuela today by estimates are Venezuela has international reserves of approximately $10 billion, according to this report, but its financing needs for 2017 are $17 billion. So they got a $7 billion hole at minimum. So they're taking extraordinary measures to repay creditors uh, and unusual steps to raise cash. For example, it's turned to loans to China and to Russia, 
These loans are paid with oil deliveries. So they are, in essence, taking the oil that belongs to the people of Venezuela and selling it at a discount uh, to China or giving it to China and Russia at a discount in exchange for the cash. And even there, they have fallen behind on the arrangements. Um, and then, of course, the well-reported sale of $2.8 billion in bonds issued by the state-run oil entity that was sold to Goldman Sachs for $865 million. So $2.8 billion of bonds in exchange for $860 million, $865 million in cash. They're now also attempting to sell $5 billion in bonds issued in December at a steep discount. So uh, one of the things that people don't realize is what the Venezuelan, what the regime has done is they've taken oil, which belongs to people of Venezuela, and instead of selling it at market price, they're using it as payment in exchange for funds. And in the case of Russia, Russia's even taken a 49.5% stake in Citgo, which is an American subsidiary of the state-run entity. They own multiple pipelines and refineries in the United States of America. They're also engaged in the same sort of trade with Cuba, where they pay the Cubans in oil in exchange for doctors and uh, other services, such as intelligence and repressive advisory services, which Cuba is one of the few countries in the world that offers that as a service, is they teach you how to repress your people. And that is the question that I wanted to get to in my second round here is we haven't spoken about it. Not enough attention has been paid to it. I am not sure that people are fully aware of the extent to which the Cuban government is deeply entrenched in the security apparatus of the Venezuelan government. And we've seen the reports that they are deeply entrenched and control everything from passports and travel documents to the personal security of Chavez and now Maduro and others. And certainly their hand is visible in all of these measures that are being taken, including the release of Leopoldo Lopez to his home. He's not released. He's on house arrest. We're very happy he's with his family and his wife. He shouldn't be detained at all. But it's a very typical Cuban government move where they release someone to house, into house arrest, um, but, but they're still not free and able to, to operate. We haven't discussed the role of, of Cuba as a, providing assistance uh, to, to the Venezuelan uh, Maduro government. And, and I know they have other allies in the region, but Cuba is a critical ally. I guess I ask you, in, in the way you deem appropriate, what, if you could describe the role that Cuba plays in sustaining uh, the Maduro operations that we see today. Yeah. Uh, first of all, we have to say that the, everybody is taking profit of, the, of this weak uh, uh, Venezuelan government, weak in the sense that um, um, they don't have the economic and financial possibilities that they had in the past. So uh, if we see any agreement that they have done, uh, is uh, they, they have given away a lot of these resources of the, of the people. A every renegotiation has given away, away a lot of these resources of the people. And everybody is taking profit of that. Even the Goldman Sachs, as we have seen, uh, they, they bought bonds for 30% of their values. Uh, that is uh, like uh, taking advantage of somebody that just needs money to, in order to, 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 keep, to stay alive. Uh, the same kind of agreements happen all the time. Cuba has been there longer and has taken more profit than any other uh, any other country of of, of the region. Uh, if we see uh, the Cuban involvement is uh, is a serious one, and I think the Cuban management is like the worst advice that can exist in uh, in Venezuela these days. Uh, 
the Cubans passed the special period right, in the early 90s. Uh, they passed it without uh, uh, energy, cash, or possibility to import food. And so, most, more or less, they are saying to the Venezuelans, look at your conditions. You have energy, you have cash. You can import some uh, food in order to implement the, the, the club bags. So, this logic to sustain yourself through the repression is, is the Cuban logic. You just keep repressing and keep repressing and you just sustain power because, because of that. If we see, they are, they are practically everywhere, 15, there are at least 15,000 Cubans in Venezuela. Uh, the colonial occupation army of Spain had 22,000 people. So this is like an occupation army that exists of Cuba in, in Venezuela. And, of course, they are not ready to, to leave this, uh, this very uh, profitable relation. And they are not ready to leave behind uh, a, a regime that is sustaining this, this relationship. And so that is a, one of the biggest problems that we have. I'm looking forward in your statement. I know I saw it somewhere you discussed, but I, here's some of the things, again, from the Congressional Research Center. A 2016 national survey released in March of this year found that 27% of the people in Venezuela eat only once a day. 93.3% of households lack enough income to purchase food. Um, you've also, I believe I saw it in your statement or somewhere else about the amount of weight that Venezuelans have lost in the last year. Was that, am I correct? That yeah. was in your, what was the number? Uh, from 8 to 10 kilograms on average they lost uh, the so that's 19, last year. 19 pounds. Yeah. So the average Venezuelan is on 18 to 19 pounds in the last year yeah. because of hunger. Two sizes smaller. <laughs> yeah, well, I saw a recent video of Nicolás Maduro and Diosdado Cabello. They have not lost any weight. No. What they have that? improved a lot. Um, I am, in fact, I haven't seen any weight loss among virtually anyone at senior levels of the government. Yeah. So this is that something that the people are suffering. People are suffering this shortage. They, they don't do cues. They are, their children usually are abroad in Europe or here in North America. Uh, they don't run the the same, uh, in the same conditions that the rest of their people. Well, the, the, last, the last point you raised in your testimony had to do, I believe, with infant mortality, and you compared it to the infant mortality rate in, in another country, and I'm searching for it now, but I think, if I'm not mistaken, you stated in your testimony, in 2016, seven children died each day before reaching the age of one. There are better survival rates for newborns in Syria. Does that, in your recollection, remain an accurate assessment? In Syria? Yes. Your, the infant mortality rate, the survival rate of newborns is better in Syria than it is in yes. Venezuela under the Maduro regime. Yes. And, and for the record, there is no U.S. embargo against Venezuela, yes. nor any embargo from anyone. No. The only embargo on the people of Venezuela is self-imposed by the Maduro regime. Yeah. But uh, it's what I said in, in my presentation, the... the the money of the resources that uh, belong to the people, they just go to uh, kill the people, torture the people, and nothing is provided to, to them. So any sanction of Venezuela will, will, will not worsen the situation of the people at all. 
the ranking member. <clears throat> thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Uh, Mr. Secretary, again, thank you for your testimony, for your insights, for your leadership. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I, I hope that we can uh, think about some other uh, possibilities here. For example, uh, it seems to me that if those who invest in PDVSA, which seems to be the cash cow for the regime, uh, ultimately knows that their stock, uh, for example, that the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States will look seriously about whether or not such an investment, particularly in critical infrastructure of the United States in energy, would not be permitted, that it would reduce the value of uh, PDVSA's uh, engagement. Uh, it would uh, reduce the uh, allure of those, both in the private sector and governmentally, who are looking at PDVSA and taking shares. Uh, I look at the countries that uh, I named earlier, and whether it's a Millennium Challenge account uh, that we have had, uh, or whether it is a series of our other aid, I mean, peaceful diplomacy is a combination of the use of your aid, your trade, uh, and of course, the denial of aid or trade uh, in, a, in, a, in a pejorative way to get countries to move in a direction that's in their national interest. I really believe that uh, the dramatic testimony of the Secretary General about what is happening in Venezuela, which I, I largely knew but has been dramatized by his testimony, uh, and the incredible importance of Venezuela as a country, its size, its energy, its people, in the midst of Latin America uh, is, a, is a national security question of the United States. What happens uh, if people uh, massively seek to flee? What happens uh, with uh, the questions of uh, uh, illicit narcotic flows and the use of money laundering and a whole host of other things? So uh, I would hope that we would uh, urge the State Department to use all the tools of foreign diplomacy, including the, and the administration, which has seemed predisposed to uh, seeking to do things, to look at a wide variety of things. CFIUS, uh, the Committee on Foreign Investment, the use of our aid, the use of our trade, the denial of such, uh, because uh, as the Secretary said, every, at every step in this crisis, it has always been too little too late. I don't think uh, that we can afford to continue too little too late. Uh, uh, on behalf of the people of Venezuela, or for that fact, in our own national security interests. And, and just to echo the ranking member's comments, for, first let me add this. We didn't get a chance to get to it today, but uh, I'd remind those watching here in the United States that we shouldn't forget the case of an American citizen from Utah named Joshua Holt. He's an innocent American who's been unjustly detained in Venezuelan jails now for over a year, caught up in the middle of all this crisis with absurd and ridiculous accusations. On the, the ranking member's point, um, I've, I've said this in the past, and people took it as a threat. It's not a threat. It's an honest observation about the state of affairs. Uh, I don't think you need to be a daily watcher of the news and politics to understand there is a vibrant debate in the United States about how much money this nation should be investing in foreign aid. And I've long been a supporter, as has the ranking member, about, for U.S. engagement in the world and in the region. But we have a debate about how much money the United States should be investing and I can tell you it is a debate that becomes very difficult when the debate is about investing money in nations that are our partners under the guise of we want to support them because they're democracies when these nations in the only international forum in the region designed to defend democracy are unwilling to do so for whatever the reasons may be. Maybe some of them have been involved in 
illicit activity that they don't want to be outed on uh, and, and, and blackmailed by the Venezuelan regime. Perhaps others have an ideological affinity. Uh, whatever it might be, it is difficult. Not a threat. I'm just being honest. It is difficult as a U.S. policymaker to turn to my colleagues from all across the country and argue that we should be funding millions of dollars of aid to countries who then turn around and support this. Not support this militarily, not support this economically, support it with a vote at the organism in the region designed to defend democracy. I do not understand how you can claim to be a democracy if you are not willing to support it at an international organism like the OAS. And that's just a fact, and that is going to be part of the debate in the, in the months to come, and weeks to come, because there, I don't, foreign aid is not charity. We do it because it defends our values as a nation, and we do it because it's in our national interest. So I say that. On the issue of these companies, the ranking member is absolutely right. Most <coughs> Americans don't realize that if Venezuela defaults, Citgo is going to be owned by a Russian entity. And Citgo is a U.S. subsidiary that has pipelines, it has refinery operations in multiple states. I'm going to take a wild guess that that will not be very popular here in the United States of America or here in the United States Congress given recent events. Um, and and um, I, I, I don't think that's going to happen. And so I think if you're Vladimir Putin and, and his good friend uh, who runs and owns that company and operates it for the benefit of their corrupt cronies over there, um, you just realize you own 49.5% of bad debt because the only way you're ever going to get your debt repaid is a functional society and a country that operates and has an economy, not this disaster. As far as the Chinese are concerned, um, I'm sure they'd like to have more reach in the Western Hemisphere, but I can tell you what their number one concern is. They want to get paid back. They, they paid for this oil at a discount. They got a good deal. They expect to get the oil. And if they don't get the oil, it will be humiliating humiliating to the Chinese government that made this bad loan where they gave all this cash in exchange for oil and they're not going to get it. And my message to the Chinese government is these guys will never be able to pay you back. This is a dysfunctional narco state that is in a death spiral in terms of its ability to function. If you want to get paid back on your debt, the best thing that could happen for China is for a functional nation state that restores democracy and has an economy that works and can actually produce oil again. Because the oil doesn't magically produce itself. You have to have people willing to show up to work and people that know what they're doing. But this is what happens to an oil industry when all of your buddies and friends that know nothing about the industry get put in charge of it. Um, and that's what's happened here. It became a piggy bank for everybody. Um, and, and, and the third point is, on those in Wall Street that are thinking about it, the reputational damage of those who bail out Venezuela is going to be extraordinary. All this stuff is being documented as much as anywhere in the world, the list is extensive of people that have been jailed and oppressed. And I, I, I know that uh, there's some good deals to be had in their minds in terms of the balance sheet. But I can tell you that um, I don't whether they're a large multinational entity or a hedge, bank, a hedge fund looking to make a quick buck, the reputational damage of, of lending money to this regime will be extraordinary. It's not a threat. It's a promise that I intend to talk about you if you do it. And people will know it. And, um, and we'll see what that means in the short and long term. So um, this is a distressing situation. Uh, we are 13 or 12 days away from what I think will be, uh, if it happens, a tragic uh, and unacceptable outcome in our own hemisphere. And um, it'll, as I said at the outset, it'll be the first time in almost four decades that you have a formal structural abandonment of democracy in exchange for uh, Cuban-style dictatorship, perhaps even worse in some ways, if that's even possible. And um, I just don't know how that's going to go over very well. 
And, and I hope we can get more of our colleagues interested in this topic because my, my bigger fear on this side of the equation is, uh, meaning as policymakers in the United States, is this, this is a very serious situation that could lead to all sorts of destabilizing effects in the region, including mass migration problems uh, beyond what we've already seen now, a deep endemic humanitarian crisis and, God forbid, violence probably in initiated by the regime. And it could, it could come upon us very quickly here if we're not prepared to address it. I, I believe, from everything I've seen and heard and, and talked about with them, that the U.S. administration not only wants to address it and be serious, but is looking for partners in the hemisphere to work with, hopefully through the OAS or perhaps as a group of friends through the OAS. Um, but January 30, I mean, July 30th will not come and go with a press release. Uh, of that, I am 100% confident. Anything else? I, I thank you for being here today. I know how busy you are, how much time you spent on this. By the way, for those who do not know, and uh, you have been the subject of extraordinary personal attacks by the uh, Maduro regime and the <coughs> other thugs that surround them. I know that doesn't necessarily matter to you uh, directly, but uh, your efforts have been noticed there. And, um, and, uh, and, and I think anyone who they attack, I, I think that's a badge of honor. And, um, and so I, uh, I, I just thank you for the efforts. They've been extraordinary. And we hear that from everyone everywhere. And you say you were alone when you started. It, it is true. I don't, there's no way we'd be at 20 votes without your leadership on this topic. And um, I'm convinced that that number will grow um, uh, in, the, in the weeks to come. So thank you so much. We're honored that you came here today. Thank you. And, and with that, uh, I thank everyone for being here. The record will remain open for 48 hours. I intend to submit additional questions for the record. We'll get them to your office. We'll work out a process to make sure they're part of our record. And with that, our hearing's adjourned. <laughs>